Amen. You may be seated. Now, in the beginning of chapter 14, we got a glimpse of Samson all grown up. And to be honest, it really wasn't all that pretty. Uh, he grew up to be a man that was really led by his fleshly desires. He was a man who was disobedient and disrespectful to his parents. And he was a man who ultimately refused to listen to those to whom God had placed in his life to try to protect him from his own bad decisions. And so, so far, uh, Israel's Savior looks far more like the people he was sent to save than the Savior he was called and meant to emulate. So if you're reading through this story, either in ancient times or even now, as you're reading along in the story, and if you begin to believe that the salvation of Israel depends on Samson's ability to do what is right and to live a righteous life, well, then you're really setting yourself up for great disappointment because it's not going to happen. The man cannot be as faithful as he needs to be. Now, that's the depressing part of the first three verses of the chapter. But as we begin to progress through the chapter, we go from darkness to light. We go from discouragement to encouragement because what we begin to find is that the salvation of God's people is not dependent on any individual man or person, but rather it's fully and completely dependent upon God, a, a God who can and will save his people, right? Now, when I say save his people, I, I want to make sure this, we're clear on this. I mean save in the broadest sense of the term. I mean save as far as saving from physical afflictions. I'm, I'm talking about saving from heartache. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about saving from headaches. I'm talking about broken relationships. And most of all, of course, I'm speaking of salvation from our sin. God is capable and able to do all of those things. Now, what I want to do this morning is I would say and suggest that the majority of you would just say a big amen to that, at least in your hearts, if not audibly, all right? And, uh, and I know that I'm not that kind of preacher that sets you up for the amen, all right? But I think all of us would say amen to that truth. But what I want to do this morning is I want to take that belief and I want to encourage your faith and I want to encourage you to believe that all the more this morning. I want you to believe that we have a God can and will save in the broadest sense of the term. And the way that I want to do that, the only way I know how to do it is what the Bible does, though how it gets us to believe more in him is shows us more of him, all right? So what we want to do in the text of scripture this morning is I want you to see God. I want, to see, I want you to see specifically three aspects of God's nature that help us to believe all the more that he is able to, to save us. Three things I want you to see. First of all, we want to take a look at the sovereignty of God. Take a look at the sovereignty of God. Now notice verse four. Follow along. If, you got, if you're new here, we use the Bible. Okay, so we're going to follow along. If you have it with you, track with us through it, okay? Um, if not, we can get you a Bible at the end, give you one. We'd love to give you one. In verse four, it says, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. So his mother and father, this is Samson's mom and dad, there was something that they did not know. They did not know it was from the Lord. Now, the immediate question is, what does it refer, right? And when we look at it in context, it refers to everything that happened in the first three verses of chapter 14. And we had preached on this a couple weeks ago. It, it, it entails everything that Samson had been doing. 
Uh, remember, Samson uh, had gone down to a pagan town called Timnah, which was godless, pagan. It was completely under the control of the Philistines. And he went down there, in essence, to find a wife. And he, followed, he, he saw this cute little Philistine girl that caught his eye. He goes back home to his parents. And in essence, he says, very clearly, he says, get her for me. That's the one that I want. And the parents kind of lose their minds. They realize that she, he's not living according to the will of God for his life because God had, had told them before he was ever born that this young man was going to save Israel. And instead of him killing the, Israel, or the, the, the Philistines, now what is he doing? He's wanting to marry one. So they are completely discouraged, completely frustrated at this point. Now notice the next line. He says, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Again, the question is, who is the, what does the word he refer to here? To whom does it refer? And, and so this is where scholars and commentators are kind of disagreed. Some say that the word he here is referring to none other, none other than Samson himself. And if that's how we're to interpret this passage, then what it means is this, is that all of this was in, in Samson's broad plan. In other words, the reason he went down to Timnah, the reason that he's going to be unequally yoked with this woman is because it's just a part of his master plan that what he's going to do is he's going to infiltrate the Philistines through marriage and then ultimately use it to destroy them. So that's one view of commentators. I just so happen to very much disagree with that position. I don't believe that he here is referring to, um, to him at all for, for two reasons. Number one, it's not the most natural way to read the text. The most natural way to read the text is this way. His father and mother did not know what it was, meaning all that he was doing, was from the Lord for he, meaning the Lord. For the Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistine. The second reason I don't believe that it's Samson, but instead of referring to God, is simply this. Samson is not a man, as we've seen according to verse 3, that is, that is walking by the Spirit. He's walking in his flesh. As a matter of fact, at the end of verse 3, he said, and she is right in my own eyes. Remember, whenever we do what is right in our own eyes, it's an indication that we're not doing what is right in God's eyes. We're living according to what our flesh wants and not according to what the Spirit or what God would ultimately desire from us. So I believe the he here is speaking specifically of God himself. So all of the circumstances, everything that has happened, as devastating as they have seen, this is what is being said by the author of the scripture. He says, it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Now, let me be very careful to make sure I tell you what it is that I'm not saying so that we can understand what I am saying. I'm not saying that God has anything to do with Samson's sin. He's not the author and finisher of sin. He's not provoking him to sin. And I'm not suggesting that what Samson to do is somehow unsinful. No, he is a sinful jerk at this particular point, to put it bluntly. He's just living according to the flesh. But what, what I think the text is teaching us is this, is what Samson's parents didn't know. That, that, that we now are getting a glimpse to know, kind of a behind-the-scenes kind of view and a privilege to know is that as awful and as heartbreaking Samson's actions were, they would not and could not keep God from fulfilling his purposes. Not only could the sin of Samson not keep God's sovereign will from occurring, listen very carefully, not only could it not keep it, but God is so great that he would actually use the sinfulness of Samson to bring about his sovereign will. 
okay? So, it, it, so, so catch this, no matter what people do, no matter how sinful the world is, no matter how people might sin against you, it cannot disrupt the will of God, the sovereign will of God for your life. In fact, as awful as it seems, God will actually use it to fulfill his will. I think we see evidence of, uh, evidences of this throughout the scriptures. Uh, you say, is this really true? Can God really do that? Yes, he can. He is God and he is sovereign over all, which means that he has all the power and the authority to do what it is that God wants, right? And we've seen this played out. We see in the story of Daniel. Daniel is praying. His enemies want to kill him. So they use his prayer to be able to set him up to be thrown into the lion's den. But what they used and wanted for evil, God used for good to be able to raise him up to be empowered, to be able to influence kings. We see the same thing with Daniel, right? Daniel is there, or excuse me, with Joseph. Uh, Joseph is hated by his brothers. They want to kill him. They sell him into slavery. And at the very end, when he's raised up to the second most powerful position in all of Egypt, he says, you meant this for evil. They were sinning from their own wickedness, from their own sinfulness, but yet God used it to do what? Bring about his sovereign will. The greatest example of this is what? Is the cross of Jesus Christ. Here are men who are explicitly and out of their own wickedness and according to their own free will want to put the Son of God to death. It is the most horrific act of man that has ever occurred, but yet in it, God uses it for the greatest good to redeem and to be able to save people. One author puts it this way, with brilliant irony, the narrator describes a free spirit, a rebel driven by selfish interests, doing whatever he pleases without any respect of his parents and with no respect for the claims of God in his life. But, I love that, but in the process, he ends up doing the will of God. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? It's mind-boggling how this God of ours, people can be free to sin and do as they please, but God being so powerful and so sovereign in all things that he can take that thing and not only will derail his plan for us, but he actually uses it for our own well-being. You see, do you remember, you sit there and go, but how does he do it here? Well, do you remember in the beginning of this, as we've been working through the book of Judges, we saw this sinful cycle take part? It begins with the sinfulness of God's people. And then what does God do? God delivers them over to be oppressed by their enemies. What's the third step? They eventually cry out for mercy to God. Do you remember this? And then the fourth step, what happens? God raises up a deliverer to deliver them. But in the story of Samson, there's something very unique going on. We never hear them calling out for mercy and grace. We never hear them do it. Why? It shows that they become so comfortable within their sin and so comfortable in bondage, they don't even know any better. They don't even know that they're supposed to cry out to God, and this is not the best that God has for them. So God has got to find a way to separate them. They're so interweave and interwoven to their sinful society of the, the Israelites and the Philistines that God has to find an opportunity to be able to break them apart. And that's what he does here. He uses it to separate them. And so what we see is men, men on their own accord, according to their own will, sinning against God, but it not derailing the plan of God for their life. There's not a person in here, look, let's, let's face it, and I'm, I'm more convinced of this over the last several months than ever before, especially in my own life, that none of us are exempt from pain. None of us are exempt from tragedy. None of us are exempt 
from disappointment. See, if you, if you think that becoming a Christian is that somehow, some way, the favor of God is on you, and you are exempt from all of those physical, of losing a job, of losing a child, of losing all of those things, man, you've got it all wrong. You are not exempt in any of those things. But what you understand that a lost world doesn't understand and the hope that we have is no matter what ultimately goes wrong, no matter how disappointing all of these things are, that God is still in control in our life. To hear what, whether, whether it's a rebellion of a child, the divorce of a spouse, the loss of a family member, even the loss of a job, even though they may leave us confounded, to hear, in fact, to hear that somehow God would use it for our opportunity to to extend his grace is incomprehensible to us at the moment. Isn't it true? There are things that happen. We sit there and go, God can't possibly make this or turn this out to be a good thing. I'll give you an example. It, this is fresh in my mind, it's, we've been, and I don't mean to beat it to death, but the idea is the death of my dad. There were people, the young boys in that home, workers in the project where my dad works, even his own wife, that when when he died, they could not see how could this ever be good? How can anything good ever come after this? And yet God allowed me to be able to go to that funeral and the gospel to be presented to 500 Catholic folks in a Catholic church, right? And, and to where people, even from that, we're even hearing people sitting there say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in any of it, but something stirred me that day. Something stirred me that day. We don't see it. We can't see it from our perspective. And you're not going to see it right now that you're in the midst of it. You're not going to see it. But it's the faith that we have in a great God that no matter how bad it is, it hasn't derailed you. Even the sin of other people hasn't derailed you. If you're here and you've had a spouse that has left you high and dry and you're sitting there and go, all the plans that I have are messed up now. They might very well be messed up, but God's Plans for you remain the same. And they cannot be thwarted by what somebody else is doing. He is a complete and utter sovereign God. In fact, he will actually use the difficulty and the disappointment to bring about his will for your life. That's immensely encouraging to me. What an amazing God. We see the sovereignty of God, the second thing. So let, let, let me just say this. So just remember, look, circle verse four. Go down there. This is what your Bible is for. I know some of you don't like to write in it. Write in it anyway. It's okay. You can buy a new one, all right? Here in verse four, just remember this. When doubt creeps in, remember verse four, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. Put your own name in there. Mike did not know that it, whatever it is in your life, put your name in there, is from the Lord. It's from the Lord, for he is seeking an opportunity. He is seeking an opportunity in your life to fulfill his sovereign will. Second thing we see is not only do we see the sovereign God, but we also see the strength of God. Now, somehow Samson is able to convince his parents to arrange this marriage with this Philistine woman. They object, but somehow, I guess, by him pleading and demanding, they eventually do it. And so they begin to work from their hometown down to Timnah. And as they begin to go, something really interesting happens, something that probably doesn't happen to you as you walk to work during the day, and that is a lion pops out, okay? And so, praise God, we don't live in that time, all right? I was going to work, a lion popped out. It was really weird, right? And so he's going, he's somehow he's separated from his parents. He's in Timothy, he's going through a vineyard. A lion makes a huge mistake. He picks on the wrong dude, the strongest man who ever lived, right? And so the Bible says, look in verse 6, he says, Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Now listen, 
I'm not sure how one tears a young goat, nor am I even sure why someone would want to tear a young goat. Okay, I don't know any of that, but I think we understand the point. The point is here is something that seems to be absolutely, from a, humanistic, from a human perspective, impossible. For a man with his bare hands to kill a young, powerful, hungry lion, it's impossible. But somehow, through the strength of God that rages within him, that, that works within him, he's able to make what is impossible look simple. And so this is what we find. And what we're going to find is there's more story to this whole lion thing. He not only kills it, but later he eats out of it. It's very strange. He, he, he goes back to Timnah. Uh, we find it, and we're going to get into it a little bit more. He goes to Timnah. He goes back home. They go back to Timnah. And on the way, they see the dead carcass of the lion on the side of the road. And there's bees buzzing around it. He takes a little bit closer look. And inside of the animal, the dead carcass, it's full of honey. All right? And so we're going to read about that in a little bit. But, but, but let me, this is, this is what I want to say. This detail, this whole lion detail, it'd be very easy for us to just be able to overlook, to be able to bypass, to think that this is just some background information that ultimately is going to help us to understand what happens later in the story. Let me tell you what's going to happen later in the story. He's going to use this event with the lion, both him killing it and the eating from, from the honey, and he's going to use it as a riddle to try to win a bet against the Philistines. And and so we'll see that in just a little bit. So it's very tempting for us, and many commentators actually do it. They actually just bypass this and say, you need to know this for what's about to happen. But I think if we think that this particular information is simply for background information to understand something that happens later in the story, I think we're missing the point. I think what God is doing, not only for us, but also for Samson, primarily, at least at the time, is that God was using the event to demonstrate his power to both deliver and to provide for Samson. He wants him to know before his ministry progresses any further that in the strength of God, nothing is impossible. So he's going to use this event in his life to prepare his heart and to build his faith So that later in the future, when he confronts even greater challenges, that he is aware of the power of God that flows within him and that is available to him to overcome the greatest difficulties in life. Let me give you a biblical example of what I'm saying. We see it, I believe, in the life of David. David was a young boy. Before he became a king, what was he? He was a shepherd, right? There's little David playing his harp, string, string, string out there, right? And he's just minding his own business, playing with a slingshot. And as he's watching, a lion comes. What does he do to the lion? Kills him. Another day, bear comes. What does he do to the bear, right? Bear rug, right? That's the way he makes him into a rug, right? He he kills both of them. And he understands, and we understand, that it was God who did this. We understand that it was through the power of God. In fact, he recognized it, and God used the past, demonstrating his power in the past and in difficulties in the past to encourage him for the greater difficulties in the future. We see this played out in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 31. There, he, David is all just begging Saul to be able to get a fight with the heavyweight champ of the world, right? I mean, he's sitting there going, man, just, I'm, I'm a contender. Just let me in the ring. Give me a chance. Give me a chance. And he's like, you can't. And he goes, well, let me give you some background to tell you that I can take this guy. I can take this giant. 
And then what does he say? Here's what he says. He says, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Do you see it? Do you see the confidence? Not in himself, but in the confidence of God. The power of God that flows through him. He confronted a bear. He confronted a lion. Are those small things? No, they're not small things. So what does he do? Now that God has prepared him during that time, he has the confidence to be able to face the greatest challenge of his life, and it comes in the form of a giant. You know what you and I need probably more than anything else is to become more aware of God's presence, power, and provision in our life. You know, when you and I find ourselves in difficulty, do you know what I mean? All right, I mean, I don't know if you experience any difficulties, okay? Uh, I think you do because it's what keeps me busy, okay, all right? Uh, Loving you, trying to encourage you, whatever. Loss of loved ones, physical ailments, financial, just in this last two weeks, I mean, people losing jobs, all, all different types of stuff going on, right? And when that happens, there's a time with you and I where we begin to feel sick to our stomach. We feel lost, we feel helpless, And even though we turn to God, we wonder if God is willing to be able to help us. Would he be able to bestow his power to be able to help us through this great difficulty? You you identify with me? You, You say, no, I believe. You liar, all right? You may believe here, but you don't believe fully here, okay? And you understand that. But what we fail to understand is you're wondering if God will help you. What you don't understand is God's power has been there sustaining you the whole time. This is what we forget, the very fact, and I learned this, when you lose somebody, you, you, you come to realize that life itself is a miracle. The fact that your heart just keeps beating is a miracle, right? What, what, what's his heart? You, you don't even stop and think about that, do you? I mean, your heart just keeps beating and beating and beating, and, you're sitting, and if it stops beating, what happens? You die, but somehow it keeps beating. Your lungs keep puffing up and coming in and buffing up and coming in. You're not even thinking about it. You're not like, man... Oh, I forgot to breathe. You're not thinking that way, right? Or we'd all be dead. It's just this natural process. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus holds all things together. That without you even knowing it, God keeps the world slanted on the perfect axis, spinning it at the exact same rate to keep you and I from flying into space and dying. He actually keeps our cells all together and keeps them from scattering all over the universe. Here's here's my point. You're wondering whether God will help you now, sustain you now. He has the power to help you in this difficulty you're going through. He's already been doing it. Why wouldn't he do it for you now? And see, the problem for us is perception. Because we begin to go, well, that's just kind of normal things. Yeah, you're right. Keeping your cells together and the world spinning at it right, that's simple stuff. Okay, let's let's just work through it. It's just become so normal to us, we just don't think it's that great of a deal But even those normal things, those every day, those every day of God supplying, of God protecting, of God doing all these kind of things, he's willing to do again. There's a great story that we find in the word of God. It happens in 2 Kings chapter 3. They're the kings of Israel, Judah, and Edom. They come together to march against king, the king of Moab. They they bring them all together, and for seven days, they march and, and the whole idea was to get to this stream bed where they could begin to drink. They only had seven days of water. They get to that stream bed, all three of these kings, all of their army, and it's completely dry as a bone. And there's no water there for any of them to be able to drink. So they go to Elisha, and they tell Elisha, they go, what can we do about this water? They're completely freaking out. And Elisha says to him, on behalf of God, he says, thus says the Lord, I will make the dry stream bed full of pools. Now notice how he's going to do it. 
He goes on to say, you shall not see wind or rain, but that the streamed bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you and your livestock and your animals. He goes, in other words, what are you going to do? He's going to perform a miracle. It's not just going to rain and them just sit back and go, oh, well, you know, it just so happens that the forecast called for 60% chance of rain like it does for a day on baptism day. All right? All right? So, so, so it's just going to so happen to rain. He says, I'm going to flood the bed without any wind and any rain. So, so that everybody know that, that is from God. And here's my favorite line of the whole thing, verse eight, 18. This is a light thing in the sight of God. This is a light thing. This is a small thing. What you need to understand, no matter what it is that you're facing, is that not only has, yes, God will help you because he's constantly sustaining you anyway, faithfully every single day, your very life, your very breath, he's willing to be able to help. He's willing to be able to care for you. But what I want you to understand is the big thing that you think is so great and so giant, even that to God is just a little small thing. And so what do we remind ourselves? We remind ourselves the same thing, is that the power of God he provides in the past will sustain you in the future. And as big as you might think it is, it is a small thing for God. So we see two things in the text of Scripture. We see, number one, we see the sovereignty of God. We see the power of God. And third, we see the salvation of God. Now, what I want to emphasize for the rest of the story is really what a big, giant loser Samson is. Okay, all right, just want to emphasize that uh, he is not a saint. He is very much a sinner, okay? Now, I want you to notice a couple things. Verse 7 says, and what we find here, remember, emphasizing the sin, it says, then he went down and he talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes, okay? Now, what does that phrase mean again? Is he living by the Spirit? No, he's living according to the flesh, okay? Let's, let, let's move on. Verse 9, it says, and he scraped. So this is a time now that he's going back to Timnah again. We're kind of going back in the story a little bit. He's going back to Timnah. He sees that lion in its carcass. He sees bees all, 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 all buzzing around with a bunch of honey in it. Verse 9, notice, he scraped it out into his hands, and he went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and, and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. And he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, what we're seeing is we're seeing a digression or even a progression in his sin. The first thing he does, he's just doing what's right in his own eyes. The second thing he does is he goes against his Nazarite vow. Do you remember the vow that he made? Part of a vow to be set apart for the purposes of God, to live a holy life, was not to come into contact with anything what? Dead. It's not only that he's coming into contact with something dead, he's eating from it, right? And not only is he eating from it, but he's sharing it with unsuspecting mom and dad. Hey, this is great, honey. Where'd you get it? Oh, no big deal. Dead, dead lion carcass. Ah, you know, he doesn't even tell them. Why doesn't he tell them? He doesn't tell them why, because he's going against what the plan and the will of God is for his life. Do you catch this? Okay, so we see the sinfulness. We see it progress even in verse 10. Note this. In verse 10, it says, And his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. Now, everything seems to be okay with this phrase. I mean, listen, it was known that there would be a full week of festivities up until the wedding day. And so he's just preparing the festivities. But there is something unique about the Hebrew word that's being used here. The word feast here actually uh, signifies a seven-day drinking binge that took place at the bride's parents' home, okay? So they are getting drunk, all right, for a lack of a better term, without sounding bad, all right? They're just getting 
drunk out of their minds is what they're doing. Again, what is it? It is showing that we understand that he was to be set apart, not only by holiness, but also be set apart to be sober-minded for the purposes of God. And now he is getting drunk off his rocker, and it's going to keep him from being able to understand exactly what it is that he ought to be doing. Now, let me, let me sum up. Do you see the progression of sin? Uh, let, me, let me give you just a little bit more here. Here's the story. Let me sum up because of time. So what happens here is he's with his 30 companions, these 30 men that seems like whatever, you had 30 guys at your bachelor party, whatever it was, they're all drinking. After, you know, the first couple drinks, whatever it is, he decides to want to play a couple drinking games. So he says, hey guys, hey, I got a riddle for you. If you can answer this riddle, what I'll do is I'll give you guys all 30 new sets of of, uh, linen garments and 30 changes of clothes if you can solve my riddle. But if you can't solve my riddle at the end of seven days, then you owe me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And so these guys, because they're completely inebriated, completely drunk, their inhibitions are completely lowered, what do they do? At this point, they're like, bring it on, buddy. All right, I can do anything, right? Watch this, all right? And so famous last words. And so I can do this. He tells them in verse 14 what it is. Notice, out of the eater, here's the riddle, out of the eater, came something to eat out of the strong came something sweet now at first these guys begin to think over it begin to pontificate on it after three days they still don't get it on the fourth day they come to his soon-to-be wife which is one of theirs and they tell him this is what he says they they tell him they say listen we need you to tell us the riddle if you don't we're going to burn you and burn your father's house wham all right, how you like those apples, right? And so she in turn does what any loving wife would do for her husband. She goes and manipulates him, all right? And so she goes to him and she begins to pour the, the, the tears out. You don't love me. If you love me, you would do this. Why don't you do this? Finally, he tells her what the riddle is. She in turn goes, y'all tracking with me here? He goes and tells the boys, the 30 men, they come back and on the seventh day, they answer him the riddle. They said, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion, right? And he sits there and he knows immediately there's no way these guys figured it out for themselves. They're a bunch of dumb Philistines. There's no way they could figure this out. I know that my heifer did it. Again, don't use that terminology, uh, but he's pretty angry with his wife right now, all right? And so, um, so, so, so here's what happens. And so now notice this last part. So Samson then goes down to Eshkelon and kills 30 men and he takes their garments and he gives them to the 30 men at the feast. And at this point, he then in turn gives his wife away, basically, we're to see that. And, and, and it's, it, it's funny because when we see this, we begin to get a little bit confused. We, we feel like this is the height of a sin. He goes down actually and murders 30 men and steals their goods, okay? This is horrendous. Here's where the difficulty and the rub of the scriptures are though. All right. The rub of the scriptures is we know that it's sin. We know that it's wrong, but it's given us another illustration of the sovereignty of God that I've laid out already. Notice this verse 19, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he went down to Eshkelon and struck down 30 men. He struck down the 30 men by God's power. Now that's weird. It's hard. He's going by his own sin. He's, he's trying to, but yet God is using it to enact justice and his judgment upon the Philistines. Does that make sense? So we're seeing that it doesn't completely make sense because you're like, wow, there's a lot of tension in there and there is a great deal of tension there. But what we see in what he's doing is not only an example of his sovereignty and an example of his strength that he was able to, these men didn't give their clothes to them. 
All right, hey, give me your clothes. All right, here you go. No, he beat it off of them. All right, he killed these men and took all of them and took all of their clothes. So it's a demonstration of those things. But more so, I think it's a beautiful picture of God's salvation. When I read through this text, I have all kinds of problems with it in in many ways. One thing is I'm wondering why in the world is God using a man like Samson? Because what we do is the people that God uses, we like them to be squeaky clean. In fact, I got to tell you that in the beginning of this week, I, God had to correct me in my theology and things that I say. Got to find something else to be able to say to people because for years I've been saying, listen, man, if you're not living a pure life, God can't and will not use you. Well, what do you do when you come to Samson? God cannot use you if you're not living a pure life. Well, that makes us sovereign, not God, right? And so you can't really ultimately say that God can't use a person who has sin on their life because, number one, if he can't use people with sin on their life, can he use anyone? No, not at all. I think the way that I explain it a little bit now is, hey, listen, God can use you sin in all because he's a great God. And, and some people might even sit in there and say, well, God's going to use me anyway. I'm going to go sin. Well, it's a demonstration that your heart has never been converted. And you truly don't understand the goodness and the grace of God because you're, you're using that message to sin all the more rather than to flee sin. But what I would say to this is, you know what? God can use a sinful person, a person who is rebellious towards God, a person that is living for themselves. But you know what? It's a whole lot more enjoyable when he uses somebody who is seeking to be faithful to God. It's a whole lot more enjoyable. Trust me on this. And so we, we get this. And so what we see is this, that the problem with this whole thinking, it means that, Uh, It says that God can't work or fulfill his will if we are. Let me back up. The problem with such thinking is that it makes everything dependent upon you and me. It says that God can't work or fulfill his will if we are not on board. It means that God's saving work of sinners would be limited to whether people could be good enough and stay good enough for God to save. But that means that God would not be a gracious God. And in in fact, he would rather deal with us based on our works. This means then that he would only save good people rather than sinners. But Jesus didn't come to save the righteous, but the righteous. Listen, friend, if you think that you need to clean up your act this morning before God will save you, you've got this whole salvation thing wrong. You come as you are. You come sinner and, and that's the only way you can come to him. It's the only way you can receive his grace to identify I am fully and completely and utterly sinful. And so what God does is by his grace, he takes that sin and he bestows his grace and his mercy upon you and he saves you, not because you were good, but because he is ultimately good. That's his salvation. Now, I wanna say one last thing. I think that there is one more thing. I think when, you, when, when I think of this and I think of Samson going down and killing these 30 men in cold blood and stealing. So, man, that's messy, isn't it? Theologically, it's messy to even get your arms around. I mean, here is God. Somehow God is a part of this, but yet God can't be, uh, you know, the creator of, of sin and temptation towards Samson. You guys, you guys with me? Theologically, it's hard to work out. But what it reminds me is this, and it's what we've learned from this story. It's what we've learned from the entire book, and it's what we've learned from this entire book from cover to cover, and that is, When God forgives sin, it's always because something ugly had to happen. For God to save his people, men had to die. For God to save his people, one man had to die. 
the Son of God had to be beaten and bludgeoned on a cross in order for our sins to be forgiven. You say, where's the gospel? There's the gospel. Now, what I want to share with you this morning is this. In close, there are some of you who are sitting back and you're going through horrible, very difficult times. I get it, have the same thing myself. Some of you are acting as though you are hoping that God is going to move. Let me assure you, God is going to move. Somehow, some way. You don't have to beg him to begin to work for you now because he has constantly been working on your behalf. And here's the wonderful thing. It's not because you are a wonderful person. It is because he is a wonderful, gracious God towards you. He has got the strength to do it. You may be saying he could do it for anything else, but he can't do it for this. You don't know the strength of God. If he can turn the atrocity of the death of his son into the greatest good to save mankind, then he can take whatever difficulty and hardship you are and use it to fulfill his perfect sovereign will for your life. And again, it's all done by his grace. And you're sitting there, and some of you are struggling, and I get the struggle, but this message is for you to believe by faith, not for somebody else, for you right now, right here. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you, we thank you, we glorify you. God, you are worthy of all of our praise. We thank you for this morning. God, I pray that we're moved by the picture of a greater God. God, I pray that we are moved by the picture of a God who saves, that a God who is sovereign, that a God has a God's strength and power, God who saves sinners, and he does it all by his grace. God, I pray that you will take the teaching of this morning and you will drive it home, that you will make it comfort in the heart of those who are struggling this morning. And we will leave this place rejoicing and praising you all the more for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand. Stand, I'm gonna be down here. I'd love to pray with you. If, if you have a prayer request, I'd love to pray with you. Altar's open if you just wanna come and pray, but you know that you can do business where you are and that's fine. Just do business with God this morning in light of the preaching of God's word. All right, let's respond.
our ushers to come uh, for the collecting of our offering. And Brother Dan is going to pray for the offering at this time.